1: In the words of the Trade Offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just trade offs. You can find trade offs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stripping down science.
0: The Naked Scientists.
1: Hello, it is Sunday the 19th of February 2012. Welcome to The Naked Scientists. with me Chris Smith and also with Helen Scales. Hi Helen. Hello. Now this week we're looking at one of the world's largest lasers which fires salvos of x-rays. You can find out what scientists are doing with that shortly. Plus we'll look at some examples of some very compact lasers including one that can turn any surface including yourself into a very compact touchscreen and another one that fits into a briefcase and could produce pretty much any colour of laser light that you like in fact it's set up here in front of us and in a minute i'll put it and its inventors through their paces helen
2: exciting stuff and on the subject of exciting inventions the world's smallest personal computer the credit card size raspberry pi arrives in britain this week with its co-inventor david braben is here to explain how he's made this miniature marvel and it's gonna just cost 20 pounds
1: Brilliant. Meanwhile, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can also write on our Facebook page. That's at facebook.com/slash the Naked Scientists. Or you can drop us an email. Our email address here is Chris at the scientistcom The Naked Scientists
0: podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk.
1: Cosmos is a Cambridge University project that's developing a tunable, portable laser for medical diagnostics and for scientific research. And here to show us how it works is Professor Harry Coles from the University of Cambridge and Dr Philip Hans, also from the University of Cambridge. Let's kick off as well with Harry. Welcome to the programme. Good to have you with us. What actually is a laser, first of all, though, Harry? Tell us about
3: that. So, laser stands for Light Amplification Simulated Emission of Radiation, and it's spelled L-A-S-E-R, not the American way, with a Z. And the easiest way to think of a laser and how it works is imagine yesterday afternoon when it was raining. The rain comes down in a random pattern. But if that rain came down and got trapped on a washing line, for example, you'd have a whole load of drops of water hanging on the line. And then if you flick that washing line, all of the water drops drop down together. You get what's called a cascade process. Because the the laser is at a certain height, you get the same energy dropping down in the water droplets. But if I had a higher washing line? You'd get more energy. So changing the height of the washing line tunes the laser, if you like, to think of it that way. And then what you do is, you, in, in an actual cavity, in a real laser, you put that light between mirrors and you bounce the light back and forth to give you gain in a single direction.
1: Now, obviously, lasers don't have washing lines in them. No. What do they use to create the metaphorical washing
3: line? The, the, that is the molecule or the system itself. Take any molecule, for example, that you can excite. So you excite electrons to a higher energy level. That's the analogue of the water droplet. And then as the uh, electrons de-excite, they give light out, they give photons out.
1: And they can only have discrete energy levels, so they have to give light, light. of a certain colour.
3: That is correct, yes, absolutely.
1: So how do you actually stimulate the emission of the uh, radiation? What does the shaking of the washing line and actually makes more light where there was less to start with?
3: You can do it two ways. You either, In our systems, we drive the laser with a pumped diode system, in fact, to get light in to excite the system. You could do it electrically. For our application, we don't do it electrically. We want to use fairly low energies, because of the med- medical applications that we, we'll talk about later. We don't want high-powered lasers. Philip,
1: why is this special, what you've actually invented? Well, what we've got here is
4: a
3: particularly small
4: and self-fabricated laser. And in my hand right here, in fact, is, a, is the business end of our laser. It's just a, a small glass cell, two pieces of glass separated only 10 microns apart. In this cell, we have a tiny amount of a liquid crystal material. And this liquid crystal material acts as both the gain medium, the, the washing line, if you like, using Harry's analogy, but also as the mirrors of the system. So in one small, compact, easily fabricated thing, we have almost the entire laser system there. All we now need to do is to excite it with a form of energy from the, from the pump source.
1: So you have a laser which you put energy into your new laser cavity with, so that's the source of the energy in the first place, and that then produces new laser light of whatever frequency you want to. So, the breakthrough here is not just the miniaturization, but the ability to create light of any color you want. Because, yes. I, I mean, a previous laser cavity would be dictated by a certain height of washing line of those atoms in there. You, you can get around that problem and produce washing lines of any height.
4: Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, there's a certain range of operation, but what we can do with this laser is we can emit, take a fixed wavelength pump source and convert it into a, an any colour laser output, specifically from the range of about 450 to 850 nanometers. So that's all the way across the visible
1: spectrum. So it's blue right through to red. And into and the near infrared a little bit as well, yeah. So you've got it set up in front of us. Can you just talk me through what I am seeing here? So uh this this unit
4: in front of me right here is is the laser itself. You can see it's in two parts, it's a modular design. Uh the, the the largest part is actually the the pump the energy pump energy uh, that we that we're delivering to it. But the small box at the end here contains our liquid crystal cell, which is like the one I've got in my hand right here. So we we shine light onto that liquid crystal cell and it simply emits laser light. Um at the moment you can see it's focused onto this spot card here. It's focusing uh, it's emitting red light because the uh, twisted molecules that are inside our liquid crystal have a certain helix that reflects and therefore resonates red light. However, if I translate the cell across, I move a different part of the cell in front of the beam where the helix is more tightly wound, and it now reflects and resonates green light.
1: So liquid crystals, these are the same things that in, say... Your TV in your living room these days, calculators once upon a time, those are the display molecules. You're using certain configurations of those to cause the light to go through these contortions that produce the different colours.
4: That's right. Inside the cell there are three basic components. There's uh, the dye itself, which is the emissive part, the part that absorbs the radiation and emits the light. And then there we have what we call a chiral pneumatic liquid crystal. So it's a twisted structure at a molecular level. Uh, and that acts as the resonator of our, as of our laser. And the amount of twist that we give it determines the resonant wavelength and therefore the emission colour of our laser. So
1: what are all of the crystal architectures pre-made on that little chip, or do you actually, using electronics, change them dynamically?
4: The structure itself forms spontaneously. It's important to say that, first of all. So all we need to do is mix the component agreements together in a test tube and then fill the cell, and that spontaneously forms the right structure. If you want to change the the helix... Uh, you can do so in a number of ways. One is chemically. We can just re- change the ratio of our mixtures. You can tune it electrically to a certain degree as well. We can get about a 100 nanometers or so of tuning electrically. Uh, what I'm doing here is a mechanical tuning. We've got a, a variation in the helix across the cell. And as I press the button, I can tune the wavelength from red to green.
1: Should we see it change? Yep. So you uh, click a button on your laptop which talks to the device. And we can go from red to
4: orange yellow. to yellow. Yep. And if I keep going... Green colour? I come through to green. That's the range of this particular demo. We can actually go all the way through to blue and, as I say, into the infrared as well.
1: Philip, thank you. Harry, so why did you do this? What do you actually want to use this for? Why is this a
3: big breakthrough? Uh, Because every molecule has a different chemical structure and therefore has a different signal. So if you want to look at a whole range of different materials, might be a biological system, then you will have absorption, say, at different wavelengths, different colours. And you can look at systems naturally. So you don't have, in this case, you can do it, but you don't have to put fluorescein or fluorescent dyes into your material. You can look at their natural absorption and, indeed, their natural fluorescence.
1: So if you're a scientist using a microscope in a laboratory where previously you'd have to label cells with something that you would then flash light of a certain colour onto to make it glow, now you're saying you can just tune up your laser into the microscope, choosing a particular wavelength that will make things that are naturally there anyway
3: glow. So you don't have to add anything. Absolutely. All proteins that are in in biological systems fluoresce beautifully in the blue-violet. So you can pump that system and look at the output signals. And because it's so compact, you could, I presume, take that on the
1: road, put it into a surgery... If you're looking for a certain substance in the blood, you could do that very easily. You wouldn't have to have loads of equipment.
3: That's right. One of our aims is to um, develop these lasers for developing countries where we'd we'd have portable devices, battery-powered, that you can use in the field, malaria detection, things like that. Superb. Thank you, both of
1: you. Philip uh, Hands, who you heard just before, Harry Coles, who I was talking to just recently. They're with us for the rest of the programme, incidentally. They're from Cosmos at Cambridge University's Engineering Department.
2: And speaking of lasers, in the 1970s, the Apollo lunar astronauts left behind on the moon a briefcase-sized mirror. And by bouncing a laser beam off this mirror, it can measure the distance to the moon to an accuracy of less than one thousandth of a metre. Can you believe it? You can find out more about that in the latest Naked Science scrapbook video, available at thenakedscientist.com forward slash scrapbook. Light Blue Optics is a Cambridge-based company developing lasers to project images and to turn any surface into a touchscreen Nick Lawrence is the co-founder and he's here to explain how it works well Nick thanks for joining us we've got a, another piece of fantastic technical kit in the studio with us today um, and this is called light touch I believe is that right, That's right. Um, it's a sort of a, a black box it's about 20 centimeters tall five centimeters wide and currently you might just be able to hear it the little fan is going it's projecting a beautiful clear Image onto the desk in front of us, and I think you've just been playing a game on it actually, um, which is great. It's doing all sorts of different things, uh, and I wondered maybe you could start off by telling us um, why it is you made this particular thing, and, and what kind of things does it do?
5: So the Light Touch is probably best to think of it as all the functionality of an iPad, but without a physical screen. So we're
2: just using the desk here. So yeah, okay, great.
5: So it acts just like a touchscreen, except the table becomes the touchscreen itself. So We created this really as a development of some technology which we developed when the four of us who started the company were in Cambridge University in the engineering department. Uh, We'd all been doing our research on um, the use of lasers and in particular steering lasers using liquid crystal. Now, the reason why that's interesting and has real applications is all of us were excited about the idea of having a, a mobile phone or a really small gadget from which you could project a large image Um, You see it in all the films. And the fundamental problem really is one of efficiency. Most display technologies waste most of the light because when you form an image, you block the light. And if you're using lasers, and in particular if you're using holographic displays like we are here, then what you do is you have the opportunity to steer the light to where you want it. So you create light and dark not by blocking light and wasting it, but by steering it to where it's needed. And so the company, Light Blue Optics, was really formed around that technology and ways to do it efficiently.
2: Okay, so how is lasers, how are lasers being used in this gadget here to get the image that we're looking at? I'm currently very pleased because there's a beautiful uh, picture of a turtle um, coming up, which is very suitable for me. How are you creating that image and where do lasers come into it?
5: Okay, in the system we have three lasers, uh, one red, one green, one blue. They are turned on and off very quickly. And they are used to illuminate a very small liquid crystal on silicon chip. And on that chip, we don't put pictures; we put uh, what look like random patterns. And they're, of course, they're not. They're diffraction patterns. And so, when the the light hits uh, the display and is reflected, the LCOs chip, as it's called, it changes the delay of the light at different points. And what that does is it causes the light to interfere with itself, and uh, by the process of diffraction. As you travel a certain distance away, uh, that forms a pattern. And of course, what we're trying to do here is to work backwards from the pattern, which is the image, and to try and work out what patterns we need to put on that chip.
2: So, and how do you do that? How do you create those diffraction patterns? Is that something that I'm going to be able to grasp?
5: Uh, you get some very clever scientists, put them in a room, <laughs> feed them pizza. <laughs> no, but basically, some of my colleagues are very talented in the sort of math area. They de- develop some algorithms to do it for doing it. um, It's a very hard computational problem and what we uh, came up with was really a way of cheating. So if you understand how your eye works, it forms an image over time so what you see is not just an instantaneous pattern but it's the integration of lots of separate patterns. So what we did is we worked out how to produce uh, approximate versions of the image very quickly and different versions of them and if you display them very quickly you fool the eye into seeing a high quality image. And that was really the fundamental breakthrough that some of my colleagues came up with.
2: And you mentioned already that it's about efficiency so to get a really bright image. Um, why is it that lasers are better than using other things like light or LEDs, things like that? What, what's going on there that's, that's making this brighter and more clear and, and beautiful than, than perhaps an alternative?
5: So from an image point of view, uh, lasers are great because you can get very deep and rich colours. You can address um, a very large amount of the colour spectrum. But the real advantage over LEDs and things like that is that you have more control. You can control not just the amplitude, how much of it is there, but the phase. And by doing that, that's what allows you to steer it. That's what allows you to design very compact optics so you can shrink the system much more.
2: And we've been—I've uh, been playing with this using the uh, moving things around with my fingers. It's a touchscreen. That's also based on laser technology as well, isn't it? Well, that was something that the idea already existed, and you've added it in so that you know—you can. This is not just a screen, but we can touch and move things around as well.
5: Yeah, the concept uh, has been around a while. Um, in the past, you've been able to buy uh, laser keyboards where you could type on the table. So what we did is we uh, started there, and we've um, adapted and improved the technology. So it uses an invisible infrared laser, and um, as you touch the screen, uh, there's a camera in the system that sees reflections, and that's how the touch works.
2: Excellent. And you, you mentioned to me already, um, just before we came on the show, that this particular box isn't actually available anymore because you're doing the next generation of things. But, but what has this one been used for? What sort of applications, you know, where might we see this around and about the place? And, and what sort of things is it doing?
5: Well, when we set out uh, designing it in the first place, we thought of it as a consumer device. And in actual fact, uh, your customers will always tell you differently what they want to use it for. And most of them wanted to use it for restaurants and bars, so people could sit at the table and order the food and the drinks themselves.
2: So I could look and see what it, what would I want and I'd press a button and then that would go straight to the kitchen and tell them what I wanted to order.
5: Exactly. Cool. And the reason is if you had an iPad doing it and you had ketchup on your fingers, then that's pretty gross.
2: <laughs> that is gross. I hadn't thought of that. Excellent. Good point. And you say that they're also, did you say they're installed in uh, some fast food restaurants have them as well and uh, play, you can play games on them?
5: That's right. Uh, there was a couple of pilot stores in the Midlands uh, that built these into the tables and apparently, they had to uh, almost install a ticketing system for kids to uh, <laughs> ration them.
2: Excellent, excellent. So, um, but you're moving forwards. You're doing. You're, you're looking at the next generation of these gadgets. What's next for this? For the the laser touchscreens?
5: Yeah, we're pretty excited about the uh, next version that's being developed. Uh, it's mainly being developed in our office in America. It's really a continuation of the principle. So we're making even smaller systems, small enough to fit inside a very slim phone. Uh, even more efficient the idea is it's something that will allow you to take your your iphone of the future and um, project a large image using virtually no battery and maybe even do the touch as well
2: Excellent. I look forward to finding a new way of watching movies. Well, Nick, thanks very much for, for coming in and for showing us your stuff. Uh, very exciting. That's Nick Lawrence from Light Blue Optics in Cambridge. Nick's with us for the rest of the show, so if you have any questions on this sort of technology, then do get in touch. You can tweet at Naked Scientists, you can try facebook.com forward slash Naked Scientists, and you can email chris at scientist.com
1: Very minority report, isn't it? It's actually coming to fruition. You can really see that. Um, things that look very, very futuristic and are looking very, very real here in the studio. Studio. Helen, thank you very much.
0: Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, the Naked Scientists.
1: This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Helen Skells. We'll be returning to our topic of the week which is lasers this week in just a second with a look at a laser that actually pumps out x-rays. But before then let's have a look at what else is making scientific headlines this week. Helen, what have you got for us?
2: Well, I've got a new study that reveals that undergraduates and fish have a lot in common at least when it comes to counting. Well, the old wives' tale that fish have a seven second memory has been well and truly blown out of the water sorry about that, um, with findings emerging that fish in fact have all sorts. of elaborate behaviour. They can recognise, copy and deceive each other and it turns out that they can count. Christian Agrio from the University of Padova in Italy led a team of researchers who put the counting skills of guppies and human students to the test by asking them to pick the larger of two groups of things. The undergraduates were shown a cluster of between one and 24 dots on a screen. One group of dots were flashed up for 150 milliseconds followed by a second group of the same length of time but a different number, The students were then asked, without counting out loud, to choose which of the two groups had more dots. Well, the fish were tested by being offered a choice of who to hang out with. It's already been shown that guppies are quite sociable creatures, and if they have the choice, they prefer to join a larger shoal. The experimental fish were put in a glass tank resembling a miniature soccer pitch, with two shoals visible at each goal end, basically at opposite ends of the pitch. And um, the research team watched each fish for 15 minutes to see which shoal they spent more time close to. Well, it turned out that both fish and college students performed almost identically in their tasks. They were both better at correctly picking the larger group of dots or or fish when the ratio between the numbers was high. So, for example, they found it easier to distinguish between 24 and 4 than 24 and 20. And this only mattered up to the number 4. Below that, the ratio between the two numbers made no difference on their ability to pick out the larger group. So discriminating 3 from 4 was as easy as discriminating 1 from 4. Now, the fact that humans can do this shouldn't really come as a great surprise. Other primates have shown similar abilities... But the finding that guppies do it too is certainly intriguing, especially if you consider that primate brains tend to be around a thousand times bigger than their fishy counterparts. Being able to distinguish between different sized shoals could clearly have an advantage for fish but the study raises various questions about how these counting skills originated and whether it's independently evolved several times.
1: Do they offer any insights as to how they think it might happen?
2: Well, the authors do suggest in their paper that's published in the journal PLOS One that these it really could be that that there was a very ancient evolutionary origin going way back, and that we share the ability to do maths, no matter how bad you think you might be, um, with these ancient ancestors that we share as primates with fish.
1: Because it's called subatising, isn't it? And I think that it's very well developed in animals that tend to like to hang out in groups. Dogs can do it. The various experiments of if you shortchange a dog, you put more food items into its bowl, and then uh, actually when you reveal the bowl to the dog there's fewer things there the dog looks surprised <laughs> and they sort of use this as evidence that dogs have primitive counting ability so it does sort of fit with animals that need to hang out in numbers and need to size up oppositions and things that they should have that kind of innate ability
2: Absolutely and you can see how the you know the selection pressure would mean that counting is a good thing um, but, but we are hinting here at the fact that maybe it didn't evolve many different times but perhaps way back it uh, it arose and we've kind of we use it for different things whether it's counting your food or you know figuring out which shot to hang out in
1: Thank you Helen Well this week one of the world's fastest computers just got ten times more powerful it's called Hector Uh, The Edinburgh University's building-sized supercomputer now has over 90 terabytes of memory and it can do 800 million million calculations every second. And it's intended that it will help UK and European researchers to solve some serious scientific problems, including things like forecasting the impact of climate change in the future, predicting the spread of epidemics, and maybe even developing new drugs. Our reporter James Harrison has been to Edinburgh to meet Hector for himself.
6: The noise you can hear in the background is coming from the cooling system for computers so powerful that each one of these 30 or so cabinets in front of me consumes the same amount of power as 81 bar electric fires. This high-end computing terascale resource, or hector for short, represents about 12,000 desktop systems and the calculations they're capable of performing will keep UK research at the forefront in such diverse areas as engineering, medicine, climate change and environmental protection. Professor Arthur True is director of the Edinburgh Parallel Computing Centre.
7: Well, the supercomputer is capable of doing some 800 million million calculations per second. An easier way to think of it may be to say that it's 100,000 calculations per second for every man, woman and child on the planet. A Hector also has enormous amount of memory. It stores the data on disk, just like in your laptop, except it's got a petabyte of disk space. That's a thousand million 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 bytes worth of uh, disk. If you had this much on your iPod and you stored music on it, started listening today, you'd finish in the year 3153
6: Until more recently, scientists spent much of their time testing theories and ideas by experimentation. But now, with the availability of such facilities as Hector, adding the power of supercomputing has moved science to another level altogether.
7: The climate is a sort of obvious example of this. You, you don't want to experiment on the world, and the theory is, is just too complicated. You can't sit down with a pencil and paper. So what we do with a, a computer is we take those equations that we know And we solve them using the computer to do what the scientist with the pencil cannot, and that is to dissect the world, if you like, so that we solve the the climate or the weather for a little bit of Edinburgh, a little bit of London, and you stitch them all together to produce a picture of the, the entire globe and then run that forward for the next 100 years and try to get deeper understanding. It's a complementary approach to doing science. There are some 50 different research groups from around the UK that are using the facility. They span the range from biology and drug design through engineering, chemistry, and all the way to the environment. The running of Hector is
6: managed by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council on behalf of Research Council's UK. Being able to predict the effects of global climate change or the way bones are formed were once considered impossible tasks. But now supercomputing is helping scientists in the UK and around the world work towards solutions. Dr Carol Morrison is a Senior Lecturer in Chemistry at the University of Edinburgh.
8: So an example of where the work we're doing fits in with, say, medical science is in looking at the disease pathways of things like Parkinson's and diabetes, for instance. Both of these diseases, the mechanisms of the disease at the atomistic level, depend on knowing what hydrogen atoms are doing, the protons. So these are responsible for dictating the pH of your cells, for instance, So because you can transfer um, hydrogen ions in and out of chemical cells. Um, and they're also involved with energy transfer and so on. So if you can understand how hydrogen ions can get in and out of cells, then it will allow you to be able to say something sensible about the reaction mechanisms of these diseases, and then that opens up the possibility of being able to design new drugs and so on that might help in the in the cure of these diseases.
6: But just as with our own personal computers, this technology isn't standing still.
7: We're just about to move on to Phase 3 of Hector, which is going to be roughly 10 times the performance of Hector when it started. This opens up a whole series of of new problems that uh, we can start to deal with. And
6: for Carol Morrison, while Hector's current processing power has already produced important answers in the study of molecular interaction, the next phase of Hector promises to build on those results, allowing future scientists to produce models that will get even closer to solving the world's biggest disease-related issues.
8: Phase three, Hector, will allow us to be able to expand on our model. We want to adapt it, we want to modify it to make it even more realistic. You write up your work, it appears in a journal, you publish it, and who knows, maybe somebody somewhere will read it and it will be that piece of the puzzle, that clue that they need to be able to take our understanding of diseases like Parkinson's, like diabetes, to the next level.
2: Dr Carol Morrison at the University of Edinburgh, ending that report on the next stage of the development of the Hector supercomputer launched this week by Science Minister David Willits. There's also a video of the facility in action on our website at thenakedscientist.com or on the EPSRC's YouTube channel.
1: Thank you, Helen. And now from one of the biggest computers in the world to one of the most compact. Raspberry Pi is the size of a credit card. It will sell for about 20 quid and it will turn your TV into a home computer and the first units are set to arrive in Britain this week. With us is the co-inventor, David Braben from Frontier Developments in Cambridge. Hello, David. Hello. So tell us, what was your vision for this when you first set about creating this incredible miniature computer?
9: Well, there's a whole group of us at the Raspberry Pi Foundation. It's not just me. But what we're trying to do is to bring um, computers to a lot of people who currently have access to computers maybe at school but don't have access to programming them in the same way. An awful lot of computers these days, it's very hard to actually get at them as a a, a device for programming. They're very much more devices for sort of consuming software, if you like. And one of the problems is um, a lot of uh, kids at, at school are put off um using computers from because iCT is very much how to use how office skills and all that sort of thing, so presume that's what programming is all about, which it isn't. Programming is exciting, it's fun. you can do science, you can do you can create things you know it's it's, it's really good, but at the moment, computers it's very very easy to muck them up. And by that, I mean, you know, to stop them working because you brought in a virus, you've got that, that sort of thing. The point about Raspberry Pi is essentially, we think, one of the first stateless computers for a very long time. Uh, in fact, since the days of things like the BBC Micro, nearly 30 years ago. And the, the, the point with that, apart from the Mac address, when you, when you first switch it on, they're all just the same. There's no, you know, well, if you remove the SD card, there's no state in it. How does this actually work? How have you managed to get this so small? One of the great things with um, the electronics industry over the last few decades is electronics have been shrunk and shrunk and shrunk, less and less power, um, for particularly the mobile phone business. So we've really piggybacked off that. The chip that's at the centre of the Raspberry Pi is a chip made by a company called Broadcom here in Cambridge, which has an arm in it, also from Cambridge, um, that is small, low-powered, and also not very expensive.
1: When someone buys one of these things, and £20 sounds like an incredible price point for what you'll be able to do, they'll plug this into their television, how do they then interface with it? Keyboard, mouse and so on, how does that work?
9: Yes, you can plug in, it's got um, uh, USB sockets in it, so you can plug in a keyboard, you can plug in a mouse, and there you go, you've actually got a full-on computer, you can do email and things like that, You could, whatever you would do on a normal PC. But you can power cycle it very, very quickly. So we've taken a slightly different philosophy where, okay, yes, bad software might come in, you might do something wrong, you might mess it up temporarily. But you press reset and less than 10 seconds later, you're back up again running with a fresh version of the machine. You brought up the BBC microcomputer
1: and that's, I think, where you made a huge name for yourself with a game which I know people... I know there are people in this room, well, including me, who will have played Elite, which you pioneered. We're still totally amazed that you managed to do with 32K what you did in that game. I mean, it took people a long time to catch up. What language will this run? Because the BBC computer was so amazing at its time because the basic, the language it ran, was so accessible. It was so easy to learn and it got you into
9: it. What will you do with this? Um, well, actually, two of us wrote Elite in the original when back in 84. Um, but what we do with this is we want the first versions, the ones that are going out this week, are what we call developer versions. And we're providing lots of different ways of, of using it. What we plan is later there will be a version that will be more kid-friendly. There are several approaches, and what we want to do in the meantime is work out which is best. And one of them, interestingly, is actually Basic, the original BBC Basic. Because, to be honest, learning is what's important, and actually it's a really good system to learn with. So you'll be able to get it to run BBC Basic. This should get legions of
1: kids programming. Is this who you're aiming this at then? We're going to try and get school kids countrywide, just Britain or worldwide, to plug in on this because it's so cheap and it's something they can play with without
9: really messing it up. Well, initial aim was just Britain, but I think worldwide is very hopeful. We've been approached by charities and all sorts of other people. The aim isn't just programming. It's doing creative things with a computer and really to break down the barrier of using the computer as a tool, which is something we saw a lot of excitement for in the 1980s. But That's sort of gone away. They're seen as really dull things. And what's amazing is if you talk about a kid, you say to a kid, oh, would you like to to make an app or whatever? You know, then they go, oh, oh, that's what you mean. Oh, that sounds a lot more interesting. You, You know, and I think that's the distinction. The first units
1: arrive tomorrow in Britain, we hope. What will you do with them? How will
9: you scale the project up to then optimise it and then start marketing it? Right. Well, we're hoping, assuming they all work fine and all that sort of thing, to be actually sending them out this week. Um, We have a plan for increasing the scale of what we're delivering over the next sort of few weeks and months, which I think is very, very exciting. We have a good feel that the demand's high. We don't actually know how high it is, so it's actually very exciting on that side as well. And I know you said it's a foundation,
1: but is it actually a business as well? Is there an aim to try to make money so that you can reinvest
9: that in the development of this thing or make a profit? What's the model? Right, we are a charity, but that doesn't mean we can't make a little bit of money on each unit. It's, it's a very small amount, and what we, we will be ploughing that back in to make the thing better, to produce what we can, and also to support it, because the other part of this is to support an online resource so that children, teachers, parents can upload things and download things to make it become a sort of um, self-supporting community, which I think could be really exciting.
1: I'm certainly excited. David Braben, thank you very much for coming in to tell us all about Raspberry Pi, which arrives in the country tomorrow. Helen.
2: And with a bite-sized portion of further science news, here's Meera Thillingham with our Naked Science News Flash. A fast,
10: non-invasive test for virus infections has been developed by scientists at the University of Leeds. Current testing methods involve identifying the genetic material of a virus in samples in the lab. But now, working with adenoviruses, Paul Milner has developed a biosensor formed of antibodies and electrodes that reveal not only the presence of a virus, but also the number of virus particles directly from a patient's sample.
11: The antibody binds the virus, that changes the surface of the electrode and it changes various properties of the electrical current that passes across that electrode. The key point about it is there's no processing. It's literally sensing sensor into your sample, that's your measurement. This is about speed and ease of use, so you could easily do these tests uh, in a doctor's surgery or for some conditions, even at home if it was something you had to monitor frequently.
1: Fruit
10: flies use alcohol to self-medicate against parasitic infections. Larvae of the common fruit fly Drosophila melanogaster feed on microorganisms found on rotting fruit, exposing them regularly to a high intake of alcohol. The larvae are also vulnerable to infection with parasitic wasps, which eat the flies from the inside out and cause death. But now, infecting fruit flies in the lab and exposing them to food-containing alcohol... Todd Schlenke from Emory University found that flies infected with these wasps purposely consumed high doses of alcohol, which poisoned and killed the parasites lurking inside.
11: Infected flies chose alcohol food at about an 80% rate, whereas uninfected flies chose the alcohol food only at about a 30% rate. So flies that are infected, they realise they're infected, and they seek out alcohol to try to cure their infections. You know, these animals out in nature have really, really complex behaviours that can help them fight off infectious disease. We probably unknowingly have similar kinds of behaviours. Alcohol might actually act as a protective toxin against infectious disease and something that should probably be followed up in other organisms.
10: Microchips have been used to deliver drugs in patients with osteoporosis. Ensuring patients take their drugs on schedule and at regular intervals can be a challenge when treating many medical conditions. Michael Seema and colleagues from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology have overcome this with the design of a chip, implanted under the skin and either activated wirelessly or programmed to deliver doses of drugs into the bloodstream at precise times. Their clinical trial delivered a parathyroid hormone used to improve bone density in seven female volunteers with osteoporosis but the technology has the potential for a range of drug
11: treatments. This is the first time that implanted electronics have been used to deliver drugs. There are many applications for potent drugs that require subcutaneous injections. MS, diabetes, reproductive health, human growth hormone treatments. So there are many diseases that are treated by very potent drugs, like we're able to deliver with this device.
10: And finally, some of the smallest chameleons in the world have been discovered on the island of Madagascar by researchers from the Zoologische Staatssammlung in Munich. Four new species were identified by Dr Frank Glaw as they moved from their daytime dwellings in leaf litter and climbed onto branches or leaves to rest at dusk. The smallest of the group, Brukesia micra, is one of the smallest reptiles known and reaches a maximum of just 29 millimetres in length.
11: It seems that the miniaturisation of animals on small islands gives them
1: a new ecological niche. The competition, for example, of invertebrates, of
11: spiders or minor invertebrates are um, not existing in these islands and so these animals can evolve into this uh, particular niche that might be otherwise on the mainland occupied by larger animals.
10: Images of these miniature chameleons can be found on our website and the finding was published this week in the journal PLOS One.
2: All those stories and the references are available on our website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news.
1: In England, there are 450,000 kilometres of managed hedgerows, often containing hawthorn and often dubbed corridors for wildlife, be it beetles, birds, butterflies or even dormice. Most farmers trim their hedges every year but now new research by DEFRA and Natural England involving Dr Joe Staley from the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology together with independent hedgerow consultant Nigel Adams has shown that less frequent trimming is much better for wildlife. Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson met up with both of them at one of the sites at the Waddesdon Estate in Buckinghamshire.
12: The research that's just been published shows that If farmers cut their hedgerows every three years, that can have a substantial benefit for wildlife. It results in more berries being produced for overwintering birds and small mammals to feed on, and also in more flowers being produced in the spring for pollinating insects.
13: How significant an increase in provision for the wildlife was there?
12: Well, we were comparing cutting every two years or every three years with cutting every year, and we found that particularly the cutting every three year has a huge benefit. So we're finding three and a half times as many berries as on the the plots that were cut every year and we're finding twice as many flowers as on the hedges that were cut every year. The plots that were cut every two years had a a sort of intermediate benefit but there we were finding that the timing of cutting was absolutely critical so, in order for there to be an advantage to cutting every two years in terms of increasing berry abundance, these hedges really have to be cut in late winter rather than in the autumn. So, those hedges are there during the winter at, at the critical time when the wildlife needs them.
13: And what sort of knock on effect then would this have on wildlife that use hawthorn hedges?
12: We know that with a lot of our farmland bird species, the thing that defines their population sizes is actually overwinter survival rather than breeding success. So, having these resources there in the winter are really absolutely key. I've just spotted a couple of little overwintering ladybirds here that are hiding in a a crevice in the hedge so that shows how even some of the more common species do rely on on the shelter of of hedgerows during winter. Go through to the unmanaged bit, oh yes, are they slow berries? That's right, so these are blackthorn berries and we're standing next to a bit of the hedge here that hasn't been trimmed so this is a bit that will be cut next year as part of our three year rotation, and there's a nice patch of of slows here which will still providing food for birds and for small mammals that want to come along especially on a, on a really frosty day like today they may not be able to get into the ground to, to search for worms and things so that's when these berries become really important.
13: Nigel Adams you're a, a hedgerow consultant you were involved in selecting some of the, the sites that are being used to extend the project for you is this a sort of vindication of what the benefits that a hedgerow can bring but through better management can actually improve it?
14: Most certainly, I mean if we start at the point that hedgerows are, are one of the most important and understated habitats in the whole of the country really and yet if we cut them every single year at the same height we are liable to destroy the potential that they have so this research as Joe has said is looking at two year and three year cutting not only uh, for the for the overwintering fruit and berries but even the blossom in the, in the spring is very important for invertebrates populations as well so it's, it's crucial and we only have to have a look at uh, hedges which haven't been trimmed for years and the vast amount of berries that are on them and the flocks of redwings and field fairs that come down on them in the winter to see that something is going on and so we're just trying to encourage farmers not to trim every year but so much money is being spent on on this policy of, of giving farmers help towards that that we need to get that right and we need to look at whether perhaps if we're trimming every two years but we trim in september immediately after the harvest of that second year when the ground's dry and farmers want to get in they've got an opportunity to get on the field get it trimmed and that's it is that money well spent because of course they're taking off that fruit potential for the overwintering birds right there so we've got to know whether that is working or do we need to go into the three-year trimming
13: Nigel when an organization like Hedgelink receives effectively backing Through scientific research, there's a certain way of management is beneficial for wildlife. Does this make it easier for you to advise people in terms of how to manage their hedgerows? Or do you find that people don't want to know? It's, It's sort of, well, it's their hedges, they trim it, job done.
14: I think it's a delicate balance. You certainly do need the scientific backing and the facts about what you're doing to say, well, this works, this doesn't work. But also pure science can sometimes turn landowners off, dare I say, in the sense that they want a practical way of doing things and, and practical outcomes. So you have to tie the two things together from very practical advice, but backed by good science, I think, really.
1: Sue Nelson on the Waddesdon Estate in Buckinghamshire speaking with Dr Joe Stalley from the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology and independent hedgerow consultant Nigel Adams.
0: From protons to photons and gluons to muons, The Naked Scientists, science that's fundamentally more fun.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Helen scales on the subject of lasers this week.
2: Well, Ben Vazler has been to meet Artemis, one of the devices at the STFC's Central Laser Facility in Oxfordshire. Artemis produces light known as XUV, which is a wavelength between UV and X-rays. It fires very short bursts of energy, lasting 30 femtoseconds. That's 3 times 10 to the minus 14, or 30 thousandths of a million millionth of a millionth of a second long. Phew, I hope you figured that one out. And that's what scientists like Dr. Emma Springate can use to probe the fundamental properties of matter.
15: We're in Artemis. So it's the CLF's facility for ultrafast laser and XUV science. So we have a big laser system that produces really really short pulses of light, 30 femtoseconds or so and we use that to generate pulses of XUV, which is radiation in the, in the region uh, between the, the UV and the X-ray region, so 10 to 100 nanometers or so.
16: And in order to come in, we've had to don aprons and shoe coverings. We've just walked across a sticky floor and we've got yeah. goggles on, so obviously there's a lot of safety issues, but I'm guessing the aprons and shoes are not safety, but to stop contaminating the laser.
15: Uh, they are, yeah. They're to try and keep down the amount of dust in the lab. If you get dust on some of the optics, the lasers are intense enough that they can actually burn the dust onto the optic and, and make a hole in the laser beam. And we also uh, use a lot of ultra-high vacuum equipment as well. We generate the pulses of XUV uh, in vacuum, and then all of our experiments are done under very high vacuum as well. It helps to keep the lab cleaner. So the
16: lasers in this room are at X-ray strength, but we're still wearing goggles. Surely X-rays... Aren't going to go straight through goggles, and it's going to affect the rest of our bodies just as much as our eyes. So, are the goggles really necessary?
15: The lasers themselves generate light at 800 nanometers, which is just on the red end of the visible spectrum. There's also a lot of green light around from the pump lasers that put the energy in the in the titanium-doped sapphire crystals that actually make the 800 nanometer light. So, those are the main things that the goggles prevent us against. The X-rays that we produce are in the vacuum ultraviolet (XUV) region of the spectrum. So basically they're absorbed in air so we generate them in vacuum and through most of their journey anyway they're in, inside a vacuum chamber with stainless steel walls so yeah the x-rays are the least of your worries in this room <laughs>
16: so the x-rays that you're using for science essentially uh, an end product and these goggles protect us from the other lasers that you use to create those in the end.
15: yeah that's exactly right yeah
16: it's very noisy around here as well is that just the pumps for the vacuums or are there other bits of kit that are making that noise
15: the noise you mostly hear is the, the power supplies for the pump lasers. The chugging noise that you can hear away, kind of like an old man wheezing, that's the cryocompressors. So the, the titanium-doped sapphire crystals in the laser that we use have to be cooled down to cryogenic temperatures with helium pumped around them. Most of the vacuum pumps we keep underground to try and keep the noise level down a lot.
16: There's a lot of kit in here that I, I couldn't even begin to understand. What are each of these machines?
15: So uh, at the back of the room over there we have uh, the laser system. So it's an ultra-fast laser system. And then we have two tables full of optics to generate much shorter pulses of light by focusing the light into a hollow fibre filled with gas and also to generate light uh, across the wavelength range from the UV to the mid-infrared and the idea is that we can use any combination of these pulses as, as a pump to initiate a change in a molecule or, or solid, for instance, or to generate X-rays, and then another laser pulse to, to probe at a, a later time what's going on in the experiment. Uh, and then we have a whole series of vacuum equipment, so a vacuum chamber where the X-rays are generated. The XUV can only propagate in vacuum, so we have a, a series of, of vacuum chambers to monochromatize the light, filter it and refocus it down, and experimental interaction stations at the end of the beamlines.
16: So the interaction stations are are where scientists can actually go and actually get to do some science with all this amazing kit.
15: Yes, indeed they are. So we have two. We have one for material science, for people looking at uh, experiments in condensed matter. So we have a a couple of groups who are interested in... um, Uh, Highly correlated electron systems, which are the kind of materials that high-temperature superconductors are. And people interested in uh, ultra-fast demagnetisation, so using lasers to switch on and off the magnetisation in materials. Look at how fast that changes. That's the kind of things they do in the material science station. And we have a group in at the moment doing an experiment on our, our station for gas phase experiments, looking at small clusters of helium. My
17: name is Klaus von Haften, I'm from the University of Leicester, from the Department of Physics and Astronomy. I'm investigating a very basic effect in condensed metaphysics, in gases and in liquids. And we want to find out how molecules that rotate in these, how they couple to their environment and how the environment slows their rotation down.
16: Is this a a pure physics problem, or are there some applied examples that we could think of? There's no direct
17: application, but the problem is relevant not only for physics, also for chemistry, for biology, because molecules play a central role in in, in everyday problems. Uh, We have uh, chemical reactions, for example, and chemical reactions depend on how molecules are aligned to each other, and when molecules rotate, they get misaligned and react in different ways, so we need to understand this. How are you
16: using lasers to actually study this?
17: Well, it's difficult to see how molecules rotate for two reasons. One reason is they're very small, and secondly, they rotate very fast. So we need a a sort of microscope, and the laser light acts as this sort of microscope, and these lasers here are particularly fast, and uh, they allow us to track the rotation of the molecules.
16: So you fire a laser at a molecule very, very quickly, I'm assuming in in very, very short bursts. How do you then pick it up and what can that tell you? Well, the trick is to use two laser pulses
17: and to have one as a reference and to fire the second laser pulse with a delay time between the two. And we control this delay time and see how much the position of the molecule has changed. This
16: is information on, on the rotation that we want to get. And what's going to be the next step once you've collected that information? What do you do with it? we have to think then. <laughs> we have to
17: think and analyze the data, and uh, we need to develop uh, some finer theories for that. This is a, a true cutting-edge experiment because uh, we have some preliminary data that tell us that these effects is, exist but never have been observed before or seen before. So it is very difficult to answer this question because if have something never done before, so how can you predict what happens in the future? So if you look at the data... And we have theoreticians in the team who are smart enough to to develop ideas.
2: That was Dr Klaus van Hoeften from the University of Leicester. And for him, the STFC's Dr Emma Springate. They're talking with Ben Valsler.
1: Helen, thank you. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Helen Scales and we're talking about lasers this week. we have in the studio with us Dr Philip Hans and Professor Harry Coles. They're from Cambridge University's engineering department and we also have Nick Lawrence. He co-founded Light Blue Optics. We're taking your science questions. If you have anything you'd like to ask, now is the time to send them in. Email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Lots of activity on Facebook, facebook.com slash thenakedscientist and also on Twitter, at Naked Scientist. Um, Let's kick off here, Harry. um, Jesse Chubb is wondering on our Facebook page, can all forms of radiation actually be focused to make a laser? So we're acquainted with light lasers that you can see, but what about other forms of radiation? We heard about one with Artemis there, X-rays, but is is it possible with anything?
3: Most forms of electromagnetic radiation can be used to make some kind of laser source. In fact, the first laser ever made was actually called a maser. It was microwave Amplification, stimulated emission of radiation. So it worked in the infrared.
1: Could you, Nick, use other wavelengths with your technology if, if you needed to, for instance?
5: Yeah, absolutely. You could most easily uh, extend it to use either infrared or ultraviolet. And because our current device actually uses a liquid crystal cell to uh, modulate it, it's very closely related to the cosmos idea. You just change the pitch of the liquid crystal cell to adapt it. And would that work with yours, then, Philip? You could you could tune
1: your thing up so that even though it's you're currently using crystals that work with uh, visible light, you could go into other regimes that we currently can't see if you needed to.
4: Yeah, well, the liquid crystal, the twist I was talking about earlier, that that can be used to reflect light of, of any wavelength. Um, in our particular system, we use organic dyes which uh, emit and fluoresce uh, in the visible spectrum. So you'd have to change the the light emitting component, but the but the liquid crystal part certainly would work for other other wavelength
1: regions as well. Helen, we've
2: got a question from Nish Naya who says, "I've heard that lasers can be used as microscopic tweezers. How does that work? Does it mean that light can exert a force?" And Philip, I believe you've actually spent some time playing with uh, laser-based tweezers. W- what's that all about?
9: There, there's a
4: considerable work that's being done at the moment, in, mostly in laboratory situations, where they can actually use light to trap small microscopic particles. There's a number of different ways you can use it. Um, there are various gradient forces that can be can be imparted onto uh, optically transmissive materials, those so small pieces of glass, if you like, and they can be actually attracted to the regions where the light is the brightest so if you imagine a laser beam is brightest in the center, the optical part the, the small glass particles will be trapped at the center of the beam. I can use that to manipulate not just glass particles
1: but biological cells and things, move them around and perform experiments with them. A colleague of mine at the Cambridge University Vet School, Claire Bryant, who's been on this programme, is using laser tweezers like that to skewer bacteria and feed them to cells that eat bacteria to see how... Uh, actually cells interact with pathogens. So, yeah, exactly the same, not just glass beads, it's other things. It's <laughs> opportunity, isn't it,
4: to um, <laughs> perform experiments on individual cells and things, which you can't really do in a n- normal environment.
1: Did. Nick, um, Glenn Edwards is wondering on our Facebook page, can you make a, a laser spiral or curve without the use of prisms, for example?
5: I think in free space, the laser has to travel in a straight line, but as soon as you introduce maybe curving in the medium, so imagine a, a laser going through a liquid crystal cell which had changes in its refractive index as it went through, that would cause it to uh, bend in the same way that a lens can make it bend.
2: We've actually had quite a few questions um, relating lasers to various types of weapons. Um, it seems that's what's going through your, our listeners' minds. Um, <laughs> Catherine Brown wants to know how likely it is that uh, laser guns might be developed um, in the future. Bob Boyce also wonders whether we might be able to make them so powerful and lightweight that they could replace guns or bullets for the military. Um, Harry, is this something that's ever been considered? <laughs> it
3: has. It has indeed. Um... The the Ministry of Defence made uh, a matchbox-sized infrared laser in the mid-1980s and you could just push a button on the top of the matchbox and watch a flame appear on the wall five or six feet away. I should say our lasers are not designed for this. <laughs> okay, Especially as there's one in front of us. In the studio. Right.
2: So they had a go at it in the 80s, but it doesn't seem to be actually being used at the moment. Do we have any reasons why that might be?
3: Well, they might be, but we may we not be know. being told. That's yes. True, yes. Remember that most of the aircraft uh, flying in the various uh, conflicts around the world use laser ranging to target bombs and, oh, knows what else? Missiles, I guess. But always remember with light, it's going to diffract out eventually, so you're going to lose intensity. So I, I would have guessed short-range. The range, long range maybe yeah, mm-hmm. and okay. sort of allied to the, the diffraction point. I guess that's what's going on here.
1: Bob is wondering by email, Chris at NakedScientist dot com, why does laser light appear to be granular when you actually see it propagating through the air? Philip,
4: I think uh, what he's asking about is uh, a phenomenon known as laser speckle, which seems to occur on um, most uh, lasers when they're propagating through sp- free space. If you shine a laser beam onto a onto a wall, you'll see this sort of speckling uh, effect it's uh, it's a time varying phenomena due to sort of intrinsic noise in the laser beam um, and it's interfering with itself and it's a property that's unique to coherent sources of
1: light so it only occurs with lasers. And because we've had a similar sort of thing Michael was saying about skin producing a speckly pattern is that sort of similar?
4: Yeah the the surface of of your skin is sort of at a microscopic level is quite rough and so light strikes this surface and reflects and scatters in all sorts of directions and all surfaces will have a degree of speckled, but uh, skin
0: especially so.
2: Well, continuing with the theme of lasers, Hannah Critchlow's probing the scientific basis of films in Question of the Week.
0: The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from alpha to omega.
18: This week, we wonder if we could use lasers for world domination.
0: Hi there, my name is Julius Burke, I'm from London, and what I'd like to know is... Of all the lasers employed by all of the supervillains betrayed over the years to variously destroy the world, another planet, or indeed our struggling heroes, super or otherwise, which is the most realistic, both in terms of the science behind them and the world-dominating application for which they have been chosen?
18: With the answer, here's John Tisch, Professor of Laser Physics at Imperial College
11: London. One of my favourite uh, laser scenes in films has been Goldfinger, where James Bond is strapped to a gold table and a laser beam is seen to cut between his legs, inching closer to his nether regions, while Goldfinger says, no Mr Bond, I expect you to die. Well actually high-powered lasers are used quite extensively in industry for cutting materials, for example the metal panels of cars. So that rather eye-watering moment is actually quite plausible. Uh, In reality, the lasers are actually focused with a lens that's quite close to the surface of the material to be cut, so as to concentrate the energy into a small region. So the beam that we see sort of slanting in on the table is not particularly realistic, but still pretty fun.
18: Thanks, John. And Dr Martin Ostwick, Research Fellow at the National Medical Laser Centre, University College London, agrees, adding...
6: So you have to have a laser at a wavelength where tissue absorbs that particular wavelength, that particular colour, So if you have a red laser, the main absorber in tissue around that frequency is haemoglobin. And haemoglobin is red, in other words it transmits in the red, it doesn't absorb in the red. So using a red laser to cut someone in two is dreadfully
18: inefficient. So Goldfinger, top marks for your realistic use of lasers, but if you'd like to frazzle Bond's bits more effectively, we suggest that you decrease your beam length and change your laser colour. Going back to John with his second favourite laser film of all time, And there appears to be a theme here. It's Austin Powers' gold member, where Dr Evil straps lasers to the heads of sharks, or even sea bass. John explains.
11: There's absolutely no reason why you couldn't make a laser waterproof. And indeed, underwater lasers are used for imaging and communications. I think the real credibility issue there is the power of the lasers shown in that film. The beams that come off them are seem to demolish parts of Dr Evil's lair. There's currently no way that you could make a high powered laser small enough so it would fit even on a very large shark's head. The most powerful lasers in the world today, the NIF laser in the US and the Vulcan laser in the UK are building size. And we're talking big buildings here with lots of space taken up by the power supplies And the technology for energizing the lasers but i guess there's no fundamental scientific reason why they couldn't be miniaturized in the future perhaps based on new technologies i mean just look what's happened to computers which also used to be building sized by the way i thought it might be interesting to note that dr evil's use of the word laser with those exaggerated air quotes is frequently used in laser labs around the world so it's finally cool to be a laser scientist
18: With that resolved by hip laser jocks, we hop along to our next question.
11: Lynette from Rochdale,
18: Greater Manchester.
17: As the joke goes, if you cross a kangaroo with a sheep, you get a woolly jumper. Is it now possible with modern techniques across different animals to make one completely new species?
18: So how much is possible with genetic engineering? Send your thoughts on this quandary to chris at scientist.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page or join in the debate on our forum which is at NakedScientists.com slash forum. Hannah Critchlow.
1: And that is it for this week. Thank you for joining us. Next time it's a Q&A show, so it's your chance to have any question you've been pondering answered by our team. You can email your questions to chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet them to at Naked Scientist or post them on our Facebook page. Thank you to Harry Coles, Philip Hounds, Nick Lawrence and David Brayman for joining us in the studio this week. And our production team, Ben Valsler, Mira Senthalingam, Hamid Critchlow and James Abbott. Have a great week and we will see you at the same time next week. Goodbye.